This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Before we get to today's episode, I want to remind you that In the Blood, my next novel, is coming out on May 17th, and it is available for pre-order now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, narrated by Ray Porter. My guest today, Robbie Kroger of Blood Origins. You can check him out at bloodorigins.org and uh, follow him on the social channels as well. And Blood Origins has a very unique mission in presenting hunting to really an anti or non-hunting audience. And he does so in a very thoughtful way. Also has an incredible family backstory, which we get into here on the podcast. So now, without further ado, Robbie Kroger. Awesome. Got the winter strong shirt on. Nice. I love it. Yes. Ah, I wish I could have made it out there the Dude, last couple of years. Seriously, you've got to come. Busy. It is like the most ridiculous event out there. Ah, it looks like it. I mean, I've seen the videos. Everybody's posting on social. Glenn Everly's flying across the country in his plane, landing out there. Like, it looks awesome. People are making knives, shooting bows. Like, it looks incredible. Yeah. The way that you the event starts in terms of the fire is that you grow you break out into teams and you have to you have to make fire to then have a fire so there's all sorts of teams making trying to be the first person to make the fire for the whole event it seems like I need to train up for this. Like I've done that before. I've done the bow and drill. I went to Boulder Outdoor Survival School years ago where we lived in like a, a cave and, and learned how to do all that stuff. And it was awesome, but it's been a while. So I might need to drop by Fieldcraft Survival and just uh, just make sure my skills are up to par. Um, Jack Carr, yeah. you are the last person in the world that needs to brush up on your skills. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Come on. You're talking to a South African who gets randomly thrown into a place like that. Come on. I- I'm the one that should be uh, brushing up on on the lack of skills that I have. Oh, I don't know about that. Like I spent a little time in Africa and I'm always so impressed with how self-reliant everyone is. Um, hey, that when like something breaks on the Land Cruiser, or that doesn't really happen. I should say on the on the Land Rover when something breaks, um, <laughs> you, have, you have to fix it on your own. You can't call the mechanic or something, you know, something plumbing breaks, you fix it yourself. You're putting food on the table yourself. It's all, all these things that we take for granted here. Oh, I'm just going to call the specialist that does X, Y, or Z. Well, guess what? In Mozambique or wherever you are uh, in Africa, you're on your own a lot of the time. Hundred percent. You've got to fix it. Um, and we were almost like, you know, when you when you are raised in South Africa, you know, when you're raised in America as a kid, you want to be, you know, you wanted to be in the, you know, special forces, or you want to be a policeman or a fireman or whatever. In South Africa, we have all the same things. We don't want to be. In, we don't have a special forces or elite military base, but we want to be game rangers. We want to be that person who takes people out and shows them the wildlife and teaches them about, you know, this type of vacation. If you chew on its leaves, it's going to be an oral anesthetic that's going to solve a toothache for you kind of deal. See. And in that process, you get taught a bunch of different things, you know, and you become an, a, a jack of all trades master of none, essentially, in the bush. And um, I think that's what I loved about it. I loved about the bush. I loved about... This, as you said, the self-reliance, um, and it's just you, man. It's you against, you know, Mother Nature and whatever she throws your way. Yeah, no, that's why I, it's such a important part of the novels that I that I weave in with the history of the Hastings family. And that's where I get more questions about the Hastings family than I get about almost anything else in the novels. People want more of that. They want more of that background uh, from Africa and uh, and that side of that. So, so I'll explore that at some point. But uh, is is that a Blood Origins hat? What do you what do you have on right there? I do. It's a it's a custom Blood Origins hat made up nice. by our friends in Idaho. Uh, there's a it's a custom leather shop in Idaho called Teton Leather Company. Yeah. It's run by a, a husband and wife, um, Francesca and Zach, and they built this uh, this uh, this hat for me. And this is kangaroo leather. Ah, wow! Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. That is awesome. Well, I want to get to talking about blood origins and what what got you here and what you're doing now and where you want to take it. Um, but before that, I want to go into a little bit of history of your family, um, not just you, but your, your family. You come from a um, rich hunting tradition, sounds a like a strange way to put it, because um, 
a lot of it was out of necessity, but I'll, take me through your family history. I mean, you had Germany, you had these forest uh, conservation range, like take me back to that, that, that family history. And then when you became a, aware of it, when you were, yeah, uh, when sure. you were younger. Uh, it was it was quite an important thing growing up. My grandfather really emphasized who we were and where we came from. I remember getting a book. I can't remember the, the name of the book. It was about a boy and a whale shark. And inside of that book, he, he type wrote a, a piece of paper and he stuck it in there and he described what we were made up of. And he said, look, you're 50% Australian because my mother's Australian. That's the dark side of my family. We don't like to talk about that side. Of the <laughs> war, South Africa, Australia, rugby. Okay, uh, understood. Understood. So half of my family is Australian, uh, and that part of the family have traced back to Marianne Marshall, who was a a, a convict for housebreaking in England, and she went to Australia. Wow. Then I have thirty seven percent, thirty seven and a half percent German, and twelve and a half percent Russian. And so my grandfather. In his lineage of, of individuals, his great-grandfather on his side was a, uh, a descendant, uh, sorry, not a descendant, a dissident, very different terms yeah, between yeah. Dissident, uh, dissident and descendant, but he was a dissident of the Tsar of Russia and was banned to the island of Sakhalin. And that's Where essentially that? where it's off the east coast of Russia. Okay. And um, it's essentially, it was like a, you know, a gulag essentially, for people who went against the regime, the, the running regime at the time. And so essentially the idea of living off the land and, and self being self-reliant started there. And my grandfather was born in East Russia, a little town called Khabarovsk. Uh, it's very close to a place called Vladivostok. Mm -hmm. uh, his dad was German. His mother was Russian. His dad died when they were very young in Germany. And so the mother took him back to Russia and raised him. And through his teenage years and through his early 20s and 30s, he was raised in northern China, it was Manchuria at the time, and essentially hunted for the family and hunted northern China and Tibet. And um, long story short, he made his way across to Germany because he still had some family there from his father, met my grandmother, who my grandmother was the daughter of the first forester for the baron of the Sachsenwald in northern Germany. So the conservation restoration side of me that I that I think is inside my blood started there. These were the caretakers of the forest. They were hunters, but they cared for the resource for the, the king, essentially. Well, what brought him, how did he like, how, back then, how would you even uh, connect with your relatives in Germany? And then how would you make that journey? And what was he gonna, planning on doing once he got there? He got on a steamer and went essentially around the top through the Arctic, wow. sort of, uh, the, this, uh, I don't even know yeah. what ocean that would, the great Arctic ocean or whatever it is, um, got extremely seasick. I've got stories written. I've got, he wrote stories about it in his old wow. age and he got there. He didn't know what he was, he was there. He was going there for a, an attempt at a better life than what he was having in Manchuria at the time, Harbin. He was in Harbin at the time. And obviously, this is between World War I and World War II when he arrived. It was like late 1930s, 35, 36, 37. Wow. And Hitler uh, had just formed, a, he wasn't allowed to have an Air Force at the time, but he was allowed to have a Jugendluftwaffe, and that's German for Youth Flight Brigade, essentially. And my grandfather, being who he is, uh, spoke a little bit of German fluent Russian and convinced the corporal in the area in, in uh, Hamburg that he was allowed to join the Jugendluftwaffe of Hitler. And again, he wrote stories about crashing airplanes into farmers' fields and walking out of them. Uh, he had stories of him and the other Jugendluftwaffers holding arm to arm in the streets of Hamburg and Hitler driving by, you know, waving to the crowd. Again, remember the time, right? This is building to World War II. Um, he met my grandmother in the final sort of celebration of the graduation of the Jürgen Luftwaffe class in this area that he was in. And there was a shooting competition that evening at this event. And my grandmother beat everyone, men and women combined. 
And my grandfather was like, hmm, I think I need to get to know this woman. <laughs> Lucky for you. And um, yeah, they, they courted. And his uncle, who was his father's brother, uh, knew very well the, the political situation that was happening and explained to Leo, you need to get out of Germany. You need to go back to Russia because things are going to get very, very bad, especially for someone like you. And so after knowing my grandmother for three or four months, he got on the Trans-Siberian Railway and went back to Russia. Wow. Four years later, the Polish peace accord occurred halfway through World War II, and it opened up this Trans-Siberian Railway line for about 20 days. And my grandmother got on that train in that 20-day period and went to meet my father, my grandfather. And so, and then you think about after that this is the height of World War II now. Revolutions are happening in this area of northern China. Japanese are coming in. Russians are coming in. Germans are taboo, right? Germans are the enemy. So he was, uh, but because he was raised Russian, here's a, here's a great little story about who he, he, who he was. Because he was raised Russian, he was in this little town. He was out actually at the time foraging for the family, hunter-gathering for the family in the woods. He, was, he would go for four or five days at a time and bring back stags and stuff. And um, when he got back, my grandmother said, hey, the district captain was looking for you. And, he, and they had a conversation like, what do, we, what do we do? Do we? And the district captain was a Russian. And they knew that they were rounding up Germans and send them, sending them off to concentration camps. Wow. And they said, what do, you, what do we do? And Leo was like, no, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the train station. I'm going to try and, try and find this guy. He arrives at the train station this particular day, and it's chaos. There's people everywhere. There's prisoners everywhere. There's just, it's a mad, bustle mess. Cannot find the captain he was looking for. He went back home. Next day, he goes back to the train station, and it's literally dead. Nobody's there. No train stations. No trains. No nothing. Finally finds someone downstairs and he explains who he's looking for. And he goes, who are you? And Leo explains who he is. And he goes, you are going to be locked up. And he locks, they lock him up. They lock him up for a couple of days. And he is obviously waiting for the next train. And he's in the train station cleaning toilets, essentially, as part of his job now as a detainee. And fortuitously, a friend of his knowing who he was. He was, a, he was a wheeler dealer, my grandfather. He loved to like, you know, I'm going to give you some stags, get some vodka. I'm going to, you know. <laughs> and one of his buddies happened to come into the restroom to take a pee. And Leo was cleaning the toilets. And he was like, Leo, what are you doing? And he's like, yeah, I'm being detained right now. And he said, ah, I'm going to sort it out. We'll get you out of here. Now, think about my grandmother. Hasn't seen Leo for four or five days. Gone, right? Like, that's it. Mm -hmm. But he showed back up. And the only reason he did not get sent the day that he arrived with all the trains is because he acted Russian. He acted like a full-blown Russian. Yeah. And they couldn't tell the difference because he was raised that way. Jeez. So the guy was an incredible individual. And um, when he got the opportunity, they, they immigrated from Russia back to Germany. And then he got an opportunity to join after a that. trading company. Correct. After, after, after that. World War II? after World War II, because my grandmother had a huge family in Germany. So it was natural to go back. Both my dad and my aunt had been born at this time. Mm. And I went back and my grandfather was looking for a job and he got offered a job as a, in a sort of an import export business out of London. Mm. It was a traveling position so he could do it out of Hamburg, go to London. And they said, look, we're opening up this, we're opening up a new office in a place called Portuguese East Africa, a place called Lorenzo Marx. Just the capital. And uh, would you be interested? And he remembered as a five-year-old boy waiting in a dentist's office in Vladivostok in that there was a big coffee table book in that he had. He constantly, every time he went to the dentist, he would open this book and it was, it was beautifully drawn pictures of African wildlife, African wow. scenes. And he remembered that. And he also remembered that he never noted, he never saw a picture in that book that indicated there was any winter at all. <laughs> and he said, we're going. Yeah. And he stuck his family on a boat in 53, 54, 
Okay. And three months later, they arrived in Portuguese East Africa. No kidding. And he has a job, so, but he has a job. That's a job. He's a trader and he's a hunter. He knows what to do. It's the height of the heyday of Africa. It's the height of African hunting. The, it's very colonial. It's very bougie. You know, the, the parties mm-hmm. and glitz and glamour. And that was his world and he loved it. And he literally hunted, you know, from then through to 74, 75, when Mozambique went through revolution. And was part of the first safari company in Mozambique called Safari Landia. That was, that was um, uh, coincidentally owned by a German baron called Werner von Albensleben. And Werner hired two of the most well-known ivory contractors, ivory hunters, essentially, in Mozambique at the time, a guy called Wally Johnson and a guy called Harry Manners. And the ivory trade had just been put in place in the mid-50s, and these guys were like, what are we going to do now? Well, we can hunt elephants because we've got clients coming from America and all over the world that will come to hunt elephants. And that's what they turned into. And they turned into this little ragtag bunch that um, as I, uh, I, it's very, you know, I don't know about you, but it's very rare once you lose your grandfather. I lost my grandfather in 2003 to interact with someone who knew him, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're all older. But Wally Johnson has a son called, Wally Johnston, and he lives in California. And I got connected to him. And I had a great phone call with him, an hour-long phone call, where he told me stories about my grandfather, about how he fished on the Save River and the buffalo hunting and the the, the little small buffalo called Ekaterina that they put in a little Cessna plane and flew her from one concession to the other and stuck a bull ring in her nose. And she was like the the camp cart that moved things around. Just crazy stories back in um, yeah back in the day, that's but insane. that's that's how we got there, man. And the stories are incredible. Like you, you say it's insane. It is insane. The stories that this guy has, and the stories he has written about about Africa and about Mozambique and the adventures, fishing and hunting is incredible. He published one book through Roland Ward Press. Oh. It was a very limited edition run. A thousand copies were, were printed. Called my last Kambaku, and Kambaku is elephant in the local Shangarn of the area that he used to hunt. I have to track it down. I've been uh, searching for for old books uh, uh, about uh, about Africa, about that you know that time period, and uh, you know there's those, those two main um, I forget what, which what the names are, but they're always at Safari Club or Dallas Safari Club um, that set up shop there, and they have the old, the first editions and, and that sort of a thing. So I linked up with uh, with one of them uh, and have their card here somewhere. Got a couple books from them because I spent Wolf. some time talking. Isn't it Wolf? Um, I think his name's Ludo. 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 It's I'd be have to go look. It's a, it's our actually it's a right over there in the corner of the card is in my little, uh, my little pouch from Safari club. That's right over there. Um, but, uh, and interestingly enough, I, I so it was, uh, uh, man, I don't know if they're the husband and wife team or not, but, uh, I started talking to her, she was in a wheelchair and, uh, it ended up that she knew my grandfather, my step-grandfather really, wow. uh, had worked for him in the seventies. So crazy. So crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, I, I'm going to, I'm going to try to track down that book. Maybe there's a thousand copies out there. Well, ever since we've started talking about Blood Origins and I've been on a lot of podcasts, you could find them. Like at Dallas Safari Club, the booth that you were talking about, mm. I found it two years in a row. I okay. bought the book. Nice. And I, they're about 100 bucks in, 130 bucks. Now they're about 400 if you can find them. There you go. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Once you start talking about it, that's what happens. You're know, driving up those prices. So you got to buy them up first, then start talking about them. I mean, uh, that's, yeah, how, yeah, you know, exactly. that's what your grandfather would have done. You know what I mean? That's probably right. Uh-huh. Probably right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so what did your, uh, and what did your parents do? How did they, they meet over there? What was that? Uh, what was that story? Well, uh, again, coincidentally, my father and mother's story about how they met is as crazy as my grandfather's and grandmother's story. My father was raised in Mozambique, went to boarding school in South Africa, wow. became a mining engineer. That was his his job by, uh, by university standards. That's not what he did as a trade mm. in, at the end. Um, and my mom was obviously born and raised in Australia and became a geologist. And so... 
in back even today, South Africans with because we were a colony, a British colony, we get an opportunity to go to England and you could get a visa, work visa very easily to go and work in, in, in the UK. And so my dad did that. He went to the UK and his work visa didn't come through for some reason, one or the other. And my mom was already in England working at a mining house as a geologist. And you typical Kroger attitude in terms of our work ethic, he was doing DIY work around London, fixing roofs, fixing plumbing, whatnot, just to get by until his work visa came in. He got a phone call on a Thursday saying, your work visa is here. You can start work on Monday. And my dad said, no, I start work tomorrow. And he walked into this mining office on Friday. And Friday was my mom's last day at work at that office. And they met that day. And she never went back to Australia a month later. She just stayed. And um, until my dad's death, he kept saying, you know, Oliver, Oliver was the, go- the guy back in Australia that was waiting for my mom. And uh, Oliver was still waiting. <laughs> it's possible. It's possible. Still waiting. Yeah, love's a powerful thing. Uh, so how do they make it back then to South Africa? And how do, how do you, I mean, are you, is, it, is it Rhodesia, Mozambique, South Africa? Like what's going on during mm-hmm. that, that time frame? And where, where exactly is everybody? Yeah, so at that time they come back and it's prior to revolution in Mozambique. They get married in Mozambique, start setting up shop. They do a little bit of mining engineering work because that's what they're still doing. And then revolution hits in Mozambique and they have to literally get out the country as revolution's hitting. So they go to South Africa because my aunt is in South Africa. They have friends in South Africa. And for some reason, my dad has a business opportunity in the trading. My, my grandfather was in the trading business. And rice in the early 70s was a huge trade commodity out of Brazil. And because my dad could speak Portuguese because he was raised in Mozambique, he was like, let's go. Let's just go to Brazil. And so my mom and dad upped shop and left and went to Brazil for 12 years. And wow. I was born in Brazil. My, my, bro- my brother was born in Brazil. And my dad traded rice around the world uh, pretty much for 12 years. Um, and that, that fell apart a little bit. And that's how we got back to South Africa. We got back to South Africa in the early 80s. And then I was pretty much born and raised in South Africa um, until I came to the States. And are, so, you, are you hunting over there? Are you aware of this? Uh, no, this hunting zero. Cult, real? Okay, so no hunting. So you're not no, getting any stories I'm, from your grandfather yet? or you No, know, I'm not. Because, and this is, I wish I had asked him the question. And it really bothers me today. In that, I don't know if my dad and my grandfather had a pact mm. of like, we're not going to tell them about our hunting adventures. Mm. There's no point. Um, I don't know what they, but you would have thought I would have had like, sit around grandfather and he had this huge wingback leather chair that you know the grandkids would have sat around and hear regale stories of elephant hunting and buffalo hunting and leopard hunting and fishing and his boat getting upturned by hippos as they run down the river none of it really? we got zero stories the only way we got to understand those stories was he he was a prolific writer and at the time it was all through typewriter right? There was no computer or whatnot. So we got to read all of his typewritten stories. Like we could sit in his fishing room and we could read the stories. Um, But no, I was raised in a town of eight and a half million people, Johannesburg, South Africa. So it's like almost akin to someone being raised in New York or Los Angeles. And so, and because my, my, my circle of friends didn't hunt and my father didn't hunt anymore. My grandfather didn't hunt anymore. There was no talk of hunting. There was no thought of hunting. There was no like regaling, as I said, no regaling of stories. There was yeah. nothing. So, so you became aware if, of it through those through those uh, those writings that you found that you started going through. I no, not yes and no. Like again, I I would have read I read the stories, but it meant nothing. It was just hmm. a story, right? Because I never got to experience it. Ah. Like there was no tangible like this is what this is. Okay. There was two dove hunts. In South Africa, that I went on with my grandfather and father. But again, that was me learning to shoot a shotgun for the first time. Um, And the whole thing that started essentially, little did I know, in 1992, I was 16 at the time. And my grandfather said, I want to give you a trip because you're turning 16. 
and I, I must have, I, I had been watching a video called In the Blood. And, it, and there's a video that was created by, and it was with Simon Roosevelt IV, and it was him re, uh, sort of recreating Teddy Roosevelt's famous buffalo hunt with a side-by-side double rifle. Phenomenal little film, and I watched it religiously. Mm. VHS tape, I watched it religiously. And I must have said to my grandfather, can we go hunting for my 16th, for the 16th trip? And so he wrote me a letter in lieu of the trip. And the letter starts, dear Robbie, I'm so glad you came to hunting on your own behalf. Otherwise I would have been uh, blamed for leading you astray. Ah, Uh, It must be, and it followed on by saying it must be quote unquote in the blood. Wow. That's awesome. And so I've got that letter still here with me today. It's type, it's typewritten on, on that fine rice paper. Wow. But something. The Lord works in very mysterious ways, Jack Carr, because that never happened. That hunt never happened. But instead, we went to the Okavango Delta. We went to the Okavango Swamps. Mm-hmm. And in that 10-day period, I fell in love with swamps. I fell in love with this idea of a swamp and, the, and a wetland. Mm-hmm. And today, I'm, I have a PhD in wetland ecology and aquatic biogeochemistry. Because from that day, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I wanted to work in swamps with swamps and wetlands. No kidding. Well, before so I, I want to ask what, you how you, what your next step is there after you realize this, but before yeah. I do that, in any of these letters, or did you ever figure out what happened to any of the, the rifles that they, they used back in the fifties? Like did they, did those stay in the family or do those get, uh, you know, get, get, get lost over time or traded over time or sold over time? Or are there any still with you? So there's three guns. There's a 270 Seiko. Um, I have that gun here in the States. I was able to import it because it was in my name. Wow. There was a, and this is where things, I've asked the Wesley Richards guys if there was such a thing as a 457 or 475 Wesley Richards. They don't, they don't believe there is one. Mm. Um, but I showed the Wesley Richards guy photographs of the double rifle. There was a 458, 458, 485, whatever it is, caliber Wesley Richards, double rifle. That is gone. We don't know where that is. Then there's a 416 Rigby that I believe, and again, I don't know the story. I I don't know if it was my grandfather's or if it was Harry Manners. And my grandfather didn't know that we were going to, I was going to get into the game ranging business in which you need a high caliber rifle to walk and to guide with. Nor obviously the destination that I was leading to where I am today. That rifle is now with a guy called, he's with the son of Harry Manners called Gary Manners. Hmm. And, uh, you know, my grandfather probably just said, hey, here's your rifle back from his father. Or it was his rifle and he said, hey, nobody's going to use this rifle. You take it, you put it yeah. in your name. And so I don't have that rifle either. Um, but you know where it is. I do. And, and I heard two weeks ago via the grapevine that a friend of the family's actually ran into Gary Manners at a shooting club in Johannesburg. So there is an opportunity, however slight, to potentially use that gun mm. one day in a buffalo hunt in Mozambique, which is, would be the ultimate for me in terms of tradition and heritage mm-hmm. and all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, so at least I've got the 270. I've got the 270 Seiko okay. Woodstock, beautiful yeah. gun here in the safe with me. Nice, nice. Oh, crazy. And then then how do you get, what's your path then into, uh, you go to university, you get these degrees, and then how do you circle around into into hunting and then what you're what you're doing now? So I, um, I did a, a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Conservation Biology and Honors in Wetland Ecology. Whew. Where did you do those? Uh, masters in wetland ecology at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa in Joburg. So, and pretty much all of my research happened in Kruger National Park. Okay. So I was very fortunate to spend a lot of time in Kruger. Saw some incredible things. Chased down poachers. It was an amazing experience for a young young kid. You know, essentially um, learning the ropes of of the, of the bush and science. Mm-hmm. And so then I got, and then I was interested in doing a PhD, but I was interested in just sort of spreading my wings a little bit and figure out where else I could do a PhD that sort of melded my passions of wetlands and management and whatnot. And mm-hmm. 
Long story short, I found the University of Mississippi and there was money available for a PhD. And so I packed up my life and said, okay, I'm gone. Okay. And I arrived in Mississippi in June of 2003. Oh, wow. And I have not left Mississippi since June 2003. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that essentially, you know, in those early years, again, I didn't know much about hunting. People were talking about it around me. Until a, a, one of my best friends today, six foot five, 260 pound redneck was like, hey, you want to go hunting? And I was like, yeah, I'd love to. Let's, <laughs> you know, what do I need to do? And I was like, well, you need to get a hunter's education. So I did the hunter's education. And, um, and that was interesting because I'm, you know, 25, 26 year old man in a class full of nine year old kids or 10 year old <laughs> kids, you know, yeah. it was, you know, anyway, I got it done. And then he's nice. like, all right, let's go hunting. And I was like, all right, what is this? What does this look like? He was like, well, here's a lawn chair. <laughs> See that cedar tree over there? You're going to sit underneath it. And uh, if something goes comes by, shoot it. <laughs> All right. I was like, okay. And that was my introduction to, to hunting. And, um, you know, and it was essentially, I, I did everything in a very curtailed period of time, three to four years, uh-huh. that any American that hunts goes through from eight years old to 18. Or twenty five kind of deal, and um, went through all the stages of a hunter, and then as my career blossomed, and as I got more, um, as I got more resources, I started exploring hunting more, and I started exploring different things to hunt and different places to hunt, and yeah, and exploring essentially what this thing was that I guess my father and my grandfather had, but they had it in Africa, and I get to do it in. United States of America. Okay. And so when do you, when do you uh, make this connection that hunting's in your blood, you go back to these letters, you start uh, uh, really diving into that, that family history. Um, and then you start blood origins. Like what's, uh, what's that path like? I had two boys. I had two boys and I was raising two boys and they got to an age of like five and four that are 17 months apart, 18 months apart. And I had to, I had to, I had to figure out for myself why I was hunting. And I guess, I don't know what it was about me. The why couldn't be just because we go out and kill things. And so I really had to do a deep dive intellectually on how do I explain to a five-year-old and four-year-old, why are we going out and trapping raccoons? I could, I could do it scientifically. I could explain it scientifically that we're protecting birds and we want to raise more turkeys and we want to raise more quail. But then I also like, if, if, if you know, my five-year-old said, well, why did you have to kill it? And, you know, I had to explain that thing. And so I started looking around in the outdoor space. I started looking around in the hunting space and the hunting industry space on whether people had taken the time to explain why they hunted. Mm. And I couldn't find it. I couldn't find, and I wasn't very enamored by what I was seeing from the hunting community. Mm. And so I was like, man, and then as you're right, I started reading the letters again and I started reading the books again and I started reading things and I was like, man, why don't we just, tell our story. Why have we not told our heart, like our true heart and be a little bit of emotion, be a little emotional, be a little connected, be a little authentic, be a little vulnerable. And at the time I was also very much um, embedded in a Christian testimonial project called I am second. And I don't know if you've heard of I am second, but I am second is very dramatically filmed. And it's no B-roll. It's the individual talking about their testimony on how they came to Christ. Yeah. And the one that strike, struck home to me is a guy called Josh Hamilton. He's a pitcher for the Texas Rangers, or maybe he still is today. I don't know. Had a, 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 a traumatic experience when he was 18 years old where his parents died in a car accident with him and drugs and alcohol fueled him for five, six years. And he talked, and in this thing, this whole filming is him. There's cutaways of how he, and he's looking directly at the camera, so he's looking directly at you. And there's bits and pieces of focus being lost. It's very, it's, it's very nuanced, very subtle. And I was like, man, that 
why don't that looks that's what we should do for hunting like mm. that we should explain someone like that and so i had this crazy idea and i was like okay i want to do it and um we just threw everything at it and i came up with three pilots and one of those pilots happened to be my story the story that we've literally just gone through and, mm-hmm. and, and like why i would decided that i wanted to hunt we filmed it the way that i thought it needed to be filmed and Lucky enough, we showed it to a couple of big hitters in the outdoor industry. Not that we were going to get any money from them, but it was more like, do we have something here? Because mm. in the community, in the outdoor community, there's a lot of people wanting to do a lot of content building, right? A lot of shows. I want to have my own hunting show. And not that I ever wanted that, because the thing is, it's not about me. It was all about our community. I wanted people's hearts selfishly because then i could understand them why they were hunting and i could use it to explain to my boys but then it grew into this much broader thing that is how do we i can give this to people i can give this to other people to talk about hunting and so i showed it to will primos who will primos you know one of the top hunting individuals influencers celebrities whatever you want to call him and i knew i had something when he turned around after watching he goes how did you film that I said, well, you know, I don't want, I don't want to give our secrets away kind of deal. And, um, and then he was just like, do you own it? Like, and he just started talking about the business of it that I'd never thought about because I'm a scientist. I'm not a businessman. Um, then we showed it to Jim Shockey because Jim Shockey just happened again, God's fingerprints and everything. Jim Shockey happened to be coming to Mississippi for the Mississippi wildlife extravaganza. Mm. Will Primos was hosting him. Will said, why don't you come over to my house? We'll have dinner together. And you can show Jim and tell him your story. And I showed Jim, Jim, same thing. He's like, man, how did you, like, how did you film that? Like, how did you? <laughs> and, um, and Jim was very good to us. Jim was like, yeah, you, I want to tell your story, Jim. Oh, absolutely. And so I reached out. I was like, all right, let's go filming. But Jim, he's like, no, 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 no. You need to, you need to tell me how you plan to distribute this content. How do you plan to reach the people you want to reach? I need a distribution strategy from you, Robbie. As soon as I got the email, I opened Google. I said, what is a distribution strategy? <laughs> That's the best way to go about it. You know, and that. I was just, yeah, I did not know because I was, and, and still today, Jack, Blood Origins today, I don't, I bring on people. Um, I bring people around me that understand business and marketing and whatnot. I just, I have a vision of what I want it to look like. I know what I want it to feel like. I know, and I want to run towards it as hard as I possibly can. And Jim said, no, you need to walk mm. before you start running. Because the fun part is the creative part. The hard part is like, how do you get there? How do you get it to the people? And so, you know, we built this thing that is, this is what I'll say about Blood Origins. In the beginning, did I want money from people to help me? The answer is absolutely. Did I want sponsors from Yeti and Hoyt and Leopold and all the guys? Absolutely. Did I get any money? No. And the reason being was because there's thousands of me asking for money mm. and everyone say, yeah, it sounds good. It's a great idea. But go, but without saying it, go prove yourself, mm. prove yourself. And so fortuitously, again, God's fingerprints on it. Nobody gave me any money. And so I didn't belong to anyone. Mm -hmm. And so I could do whatever I wanted and I could tell anyone's story and we could tell it very authentically without any commercialization, without any marketing, without any branding. And it, it, it formed our integrity. It formed who we were. But then my wife said, I want my savings account back. You've got to figure (laughs) out like how you're going to pay for this. Yeah. I was like, okay, how do we do this? So we were, you know, we got known for our quality. So we filmed a couple of people to, to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And then we were, we were having conversations with some, some people in the industry and they're like, why are you not a nonprofit? Mm-hmm. Why are you not creating content? And our mission was, you know, at the time we were creating content for non-hunters. Like these stories were to explain who a hunter was to someone who doesn't know hunting, doesn't know a hunter. They're like, 
oh, we've got, you've got this perception of who we are as a hunter. Okay, watch this. I can guarantee you I'm about to change your perception of what you think a hunter is mm-hmm. based on this video and based on the way that we film it and the way that you feel connected to their story. So why can't we do that in a nonprofit way, which is almost a, essentially we build just a positive PR campaign for hunters and hunting on a global scale. And so we did and we changed ourselves into a nonprofit. Okay. And as soon as we did that, what we realized is that there is a much bigger world of content that can tell the truth and the proof and the heart of what hunting and hunters are. And that was 2020, early 2020, that we started the process. It takes six to eight months to, to get yeah. everything formalized and whatnot. So, you know, September 1 of, of 2020, we essentially truly became a nonprofit. So we're less than two years old. Okay. But we are, it's amazing. It is, the response is amazing. Like, look, I'm speaking to Jack Carr on the Danger Close podcast because of Blood Origins. And Jack, it's not me. It's just not me. Blood Origins is for you. It's for the people listening to this. It's for the community of hunting and hunters. And again, I think that's what sets it apart a little bit is that, yes, I happen to be a voice. I happen to get on Instagram every so often. My voice is connected to people's stories. But other than that, every single day, 24-7, 365, we are pushing a message about hunting and hunters into communities of hunters, non-hunters, and anti-hunters. Mm. So, are you? Uh, have you quit your day job yet, or are you, is this something that? No, uh, sir. This is still. <laughs> this, I'm, I'm, I'm. I run two day jobs: fifty okay. hours a week at my day job and fifty hours a week at Blood Origins. Jeez, crazy. Okay, so I saw your work obviously at the uh, at SCI. I've seen it on the, the website, so bloodorigins.org. Uh, I encourage everybody to go check that out. Follow you on Instagram of course, but, um, the, the videos that you did for Safari Club International in Vegas, like those were powerful. Yes, sir. Those were yes, sir. powerful videos. What I love about the content production game is again, being who we are, we, I can, I can access and I have access and I have built one of the biggest stables of phenomenal content producers in the world, essentially. Um, here in America, producers, filmmakers, cinematographers, uh, New Zealand, the UK, you name it. And, and here's, I think, what sets us apart when we engage these creatives is that whenever a creative works in the hunting space, there's typically a formula or a recipe for what they film, right? How they film and what someone wants from them filming. I have a certain thing that I want out of when I hire you, but I will also tell you I'm hiring you because you are the best. I'm hiring you because you have creativity and I want you to express that creativity. So do it, express the creativity. I'm giving you the leash. I'm giving you the rope. I'm giving you the opportunity. If you feel like you want it to look a little differently like this, do it. Explore that, that side of you that you love so much because that's why you're in the game. Interesting. So what do you think then that our, our biggest issues are as hunters here in this country and in Canada, uh, for that matter, or when we talk about Africa, um, mm. it's recent, uh, some, some, uh, recent, uh, legislation passed, I think in Colorado, of course we have a couple of years ago, I think it's been two years now, uh, British Columbia with, uh, uh, with the grizzly bear. Yeah. Uh, yep. and then how people, how people frame, uh, quote unquote, a trophy hunt, you know, whatever that, that is, um, and, uh, in Africa in general, uh, and how that's perceived, uh, divisions in the hunting community for birds, hunters, that's kind of like fishing, you know, a fly fisherman versus a bass fisherman, you know, you have uh, traditional bow hunting versus, uh, versus a more modern bow. You have, uh, rifle hunting, long range now, ultra long range, uh, pistols, uh, you know, the, then the type of game that you're after and, Uh, you know, wing shooters and turkey hunters. And it's, uh, there's so much division. It's, uh, it's almost like, uh, those that, that, uh, you know, don't really understand where the meat 
comes from in the grocery store. Um, they don't have to really do much. We can, they can just kind of sit back and kind of, kind of watch us squabble amongst ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. we could be a lot more powerful, mm-hmm. uh, than, uh, than we are, but, uh, we're, we're studying this, I mean, you are a scientist and, and, uh, you, you look at things logically, um, I would guess, but, uh, when you look at the, the space and you see, uh, the attacks on, uh, on, on hunters and hunting, um, and that, uh, that heritage from people that might not understand, uh, exactly why we're doing what we're doing. Um, what do you see as our biggest problems and issues? Uh, number one is that we don't, like you just said, we do not act like a, as a, as a whole, as a community, right? The anti-hunters pull up a lawn chair, pop some popcorn and just watch us tear each other apart. So it's, a, that's essentially a cancer that's in our community that, um, needs to, if it wants to live, it needs to live behind closed doors and tearing each other apart, tearing each other down because of pure personal preference is not good for the longevity of hunting. Uh, number two is that hunters have essentially lived in the closet. Um, we don't like to be interacted with, leave us alone, don't, you know, don't engage with us. And I think that's changing. I think the, the hunting community is realizing that if we come out of the closet and we do a couple of things, and it's not as scary as a world as we think. So what are those couple of things? Number one, is in the legislative political process to get involved. And now more than ever, there's, there's ways and means for you to do that sitting here at your computer. Howlforwildlife.org out of California, Sportsman's Alliance, SCI, DSC, all these avenues for you to engage legislative processes with the click of a button. And you're having your voice heard and essentially you're, you're stepping out of the closet and letting everyone know who you are through that process. Number two, people are changing the way that they interact through this, this new thing called social media. And it's about imagery, thinking about imagery, thinking about what you say around it, providing context to that, that, that set of imagery. Um, because, again, you've got to remember, and a lot of people are starting to do this, is that what if someone saw it for the first time without any context that is not a hunter? Mm-hmm. Does that help or does it hurt hunting? If you can answer that simple question, then you may modify the post or you may not post it or you may change it or you may clean it up the next time. They're also recognizing that number two, when someone pushes against them, the, the, ad, the old adage of, well, I can do whatever I want or, you know, shut up you mf or this or that or, you know, that's not conducive <laughs> for developing and changing perceptions around hunting, but rather, this is how I, I, I we try and get people to think, and I'd like our, your audience to consider thinking this way, is that when you comment back on someone calling you something, or you feel like you want to comment, do not comment to the individual that made the post. I want you to comment to the thousands of people, or 10,000 people, or some accounts, like we tend to like to get onto a Leonardo DiCaprio account when he posts about wolves. Mm. Of 100,000 people reading what you're about to write, and you talk to those people. Mm. And when they read it, they go, hmm, I never understood. Or, wow, I never knew that. Those kinds of things change perceptions around hunting itself. And so... I, those are the issues that we we deal with from a hunting perspective. Is that is that we have political pressures against the lifestyle, and we have this medium that has developed over the last ten to twenty years, that now is almost a broad paintbrush, that anyone can see and make judgments of who you are as a hunter based on what people post and what people say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the social media thing is interesting, not just in hunting, obviously, but uh, across the board. And it is, it has, uh, you know, put our our discourse at a at a level of uh, just this tit for tat, back and forth, tweet. Ugh, it 
it's just degenerated into something that is is not productive, which is why uh, I much prefer to to have a conversation like this rather than uh, you know one set one sentence, two sentence, maybe three sentence tweet about something. Um, so it's a it's a very interesting animal, not just in the in the hunting space, but across the board as a society in general, especially for our kids that are growing up uh, surrounded by it, inundated by it, um, getting their news from a sentence or two from a quote unquote influencer rather than reading a multitude of articles about something that uh, have a, a little more thoughtful or nuanced. So it's, uh, yeah, it's tough, not just for hunting, but for for everybody, um, but particularly for this, uh, this younger generation. But uh, gosh, for me, you know, it's so important to have that connection with the land and we're losing that, um, especially when it comes to our uh, policymakers, our elected representatives. Um, we're just losing that connection. And actually, back in the '50s, Dwight D. Eisenhower he said uh, uh, he said farming looks pretty easy when your plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. Um, and uh, it just what that really means, not just for farming, but for anything that you're disconnected from. But it's so interesting that we're at a point in our history where we can be so disconnected from the very thing that keeps us alive. Uh, so it is very, very strange to have that, uh, to, to be at this stage as a, as a, a society um, where that can be the case. Because it couldn't have been the case for much of uh, our time as, uh, as human beings. Just this very, very slim size. Same thing with outsourcing protection for yourself and your family. Call 911 in a civilized society. You don't need to learn how to protect yourself. You don't, well, okay. <laughs> but this tiny little sliver of, of human history, I don't even think it's true, but you think it's true. Whereas for the rest of human history, you knew that was not true. You had to step up to defend your life, your loved one's lives, your tribe. And you had to put food on that table. You had to learn how to farm. You had to be connected to it. Um, so getting out there with kids, especially uh, teaching them how to be connected to that to that land and to the things that keep them alive. I think there's, there's not much more important uh, than, and it gets them away from these devices. We get away from these 100%. devices. We get away from <laughs> tweeting and Instagram and all the rest of it. Nothing's. That's why I, I love getting out there in places that don't have Wi-Fi, don't have cell service, and uh, try to do that at least a, a few times a year with uh, with the kids. But um, so what, so coming back to why you started this in the first place. Um, oh, one other thing. Uh, it is yeah. very interesting that the very people oftentimes that haven't put the requisite time, energy, and effort into studying the issues. Um, let's take, uh, let's take lion hunting in Africa. It's so controversial mm -hmm. and it sounds, I mean, you see a picture, it's, you know, you watch the lion King, all that sort of a thing. Um, but, uh, and then over lattes in New York and Los Angeles, you can, uh, you'll pat yourself and your friends on your back because you saved these lions. Well, then when you actually fly over there and what do you see, you see, the people there poisoning lions, snaring lions, because uh, now they have no value. They're killing crops. They can kill family member. Um, so now mm -hmm. they have. So in, it sounds great, and you think mm -hmm. that you've done a great thing, banning lion hunting. Okay, well, guess what? Now you've killed uh, female lions, male lions, ch the babies, all of them killed. And I saw the pictures when I went over there to, to Mozambique. Just poisoned lions, snared lions, can uh, just. It's ugly. So they did the exact opposite of what they were trying to do, which, right. uh, which is tough. But if you don't well, it, it's, study it's, it, you don't know that you just, you just wiped out a ton of lions by trying to save them. Well, from a, from a hunting perspective and the banning component, it makes sense. Think about it. It does in their minds, mm -hmm. right? Stop hunting means you don't kill anything. You're saving wildlife. Okay. Yes. Technically you're right. However, when you bring in the idea of value, you bring in the idea of that thing now not having value any longer. So why do you want to keep it around if it's taking goats, if it's taking cattle, if it's bothering humans? You won't want it around. So you're going to do, to your point, you're going to get rid of it mm -hmm. in whatever mechanism means you possibly can. And for the most part, all of those means and mechanisms are cruel and violent, and they don't really give us stuff on how that thing dies. Yeah. And result, dead animal. Um, it's, uh, it's tough. And then it's very interesting that a lot of those same people, the first people to call the exterminator when there's some, uh, cockroaches in the house or a mice infant, you know? <laughs> so that's interesting as well. Um, like, yeah, there, there are cockroaches in my apartment or I saw a mouse in my apartment quick call, you know, call the exterminator. Let's kill that thing. 
that's it's it's very interesting the dynamic but that's why i think gosh we got to just study and read uh and put in the time before you make a snap mm-hmm. judgment um based off someone else's tweet uh, where they also didn't study study the issue but uh, but circling back around to why you started this in the beginning um to want to explain to your kids why we hunt so along this journey what do you what do, what do you tell them now after having been uh de- having developed blood origins, grown it into what you mm-hmm. have, having studied mm-hmm. this, um, having been out there becoming a hunter. And now what do you tell your, your kids when they ask you now, uh, dad, why do we hunt? I think the answer is, is, is complicated and simple at the same time in that you can hunt for very different reasons and there's many of them. Um, but you develop that reason. And when you develop it, you understand the why, i.e., you may hunt because you enjoy organic meat, right? Coming from the field, you know exactly who touched it, you know where it comes from, you know how it died, the whole cooking wheel. That is a why someone may hunt. Mm-hmm. Another why may be tied to population control, that you, you want to make sure that there's this, a balanced population in a certain area in different kind, you know, different parts of the world, Australia, New Zealand. South Africa, as well as here in the US. Uh, maybe you hunt because you truly value the conservation element of it, right? And you value the money that goes back. There's not many people that do it, but there are certain people that do do it that way. Or you hunt because you're seeking adventure and you're seeking places that you potentially would never have gone to because of hunting. And you are seeking meeting different people and cultures and understanding that. Or you hunt because you do enjoy the sparring that is essentially you versus Mother Nature, you versus that wily animal that's on the mountain and you're wanting to outwit it, outsmart it, and essentially sort of reverse yourself back to where we essentially came from. Like what is in our blood? What is in our DNA? Our blood origins, which is chasing and hunting as we used to as, you know, 200, 400, 500 years ago, 800 years ago, 1,000 years ago, um, in that you, you're, not the, you're not the alpha out there. Yes, you're a predator, but everything is against you. So there's many, many different whys for why you want to go hunting. Um, I do not think that it is an acceptable answer so when they say well dad we just like to kill things i said i don't think that's a very acceptable answer because the statistics are not there that will that show that when someone hunts and by definition hunting is chasing and seeking and failure inherently wrapped around those two um those two things Killing is is almost is this thing that is like a given. So go down to the local abattoir and you can kill all you want, or volunteer there, or go get a job. And you know, pulling the punch gun uh, when cows come into the abattoir. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I would say to my kids. Um, that's what I'd say to a lot of people. And I think again, the hunting community needs to understand that people hunt for various reasons. And some people hunt for that trophy, and that's okay. Some people hunt for food, that's okay. Some people hunt for adventure, that's okay. It's all tied to personal preference. But as long as you're being responsible, as long as you are acting in the right manner to give us a good name, give us a good image, and um, nobody should ever have an issue with you. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting today. You know, you can uh, we we just talked about where where most beef comes from. Uh, off when you grab off the shelf in the grocery store and how they they live and how they die, um, and then showing a picture of that burger, you know, on Instagram or whatever it is, nobody nobody blinks an eye at that at that burger. But uh, or hey, let's say an elk burger, let's say a moose burger, even. Um, but then you show that uh, that downed animal or something, and it's a it's a different if it's a different deal. It's a different uh, if it's a different visual. Uh, you get a different reaction um, from people, even though 
they'd sit down and eat that burger or they might have on their website or, or their, their Instagram, their, uh, their last meal that they ate a nice steak right there on a plate with a potato or something else or another burger or something like that. But, uh, it's just, it's very interesting, very interesting to me. Um, and- I do want to say though, because often, um, in that whole food scenario, mm-hmm. that food thing, um, agriculture often gets thrown under the bus. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there are lots of independent ranchers out there doing the right thing, raising the right beef, raising the right pork, raising the right chickens in the same way as we would go and hunt and know exactly where the animal comes from, how it was handled, mm-hmm. how it was, how it lived, the whole kit and caboodle. Yep. Uh, so I wanted to make sure that we mentioned that the, the ranching community is is a phenomenal community um, and does great things for, you know, the production of, of, of good quality beef, pork, chicken, whatever. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And that's, it's so interesting. You can see the difference. So you look at a, a Carter country meats online or a, 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 what are some other ones like a, a Casey cattle company or a, a, Primal meat primal, company, yeah, exactly. oh, primal, yeah, mountain, yeah. primal mountain, mountain primal. Um, like those, and you see beautiful pictures of the ranch, and you see the animals, and you see the lifestyle, and they're sharing that that journey with you. And you can order online. You know exactly where it came from. It comes frozen, um, and that's amazing. But some of those other places. They don't show you that. Like you're not, they're not showing their Instagram of the the cattle getting herded into this thing and the bolt going through the brain and all that sort of a thing. It's not the, you know, they, they don't highlight that uh, as mm-hmm. much <laughs> mm-hmm. at all on their Instagram. If you go to that, if you go to one of those places. Um, so yeah, there's a, it, yeah, it's all, it's all very, very interesting how, uh, how the visuals are, um, uh, how powerful visuals are um, on both sides. So, uh, no, man, it's, oh. so where do you want to take this thing? What's your, uh, what's your plan going forward here? What's, uh, what's blood origins future. Um, just continue to reach that non-hunting community more and more every single day. You know, we're growing, we're not growing exponentially. And the reason we don't grow exponentially is that we build content for non-hunters. We don't build very sexy content for hunters. Right. And so, we're, we're like an inchworm going up the mountain and we plan to continue to do that. And we continue to grow our audience. We continue to grow our eyeballs and we've got some very cool strategies that we are toying with right now that are really out of the box uh, thought processes to, to the question I get a lot is, well, how do you reach the non-hunter, Robbie? How do you know you're reaching the non-hunter? Well, with social media, you can actually target them and you can really channel your content in various different ways. And so we're playing with the idea that, and this again is counterintuitive to anything that you hear or see from a marketing perspective in the outdoor hunting space, which is we're going to put some money into growth, but not growth from an eyeballs engagement number perspective, but rather growth of how do we put our content in front of the eyeballs that we actually want them to see it. Not that they want, we want them to follow us, but a non-hunter that is tied in with REI or Patagonia or North Face and loves to mountain bike. And here's a, here's a, an infographic on, did you know that the Turkey population in the United States is, is it is what it is because of hunters. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing is game changing. And that's the space that we live in. And that's what, that we love and we, we, we innovate in. And um, that's where we're going. We're just going to continue to generate more content, better content, more out-of-the-box thinking to constantly challenge and um, challenge this perception that is around hunting and hunters. Yeah, well, I know I appreciate how uh, thoughtful you are um, uh, in person and then through what you put out there, uh, that the quality of what you do is obviously top notch. Um, so I sincerely appreciate uh, that side of things. And um, man, I just wish you, wish you all the best. Thank you for doing it. That's, uh, that's for sure. No, you're welcome. You're very unique in the space, um, in, in that quality and in that, that thoughtful nature of all you do. So um, man, thank you so much for, for doing that. And I hope we can link up again soon. It was great to, to link up in person at Safari Club and um, I hope we can link up again in the future soon and maybe get a field together. No, thank you, Jack. I much appreciate it. And I'm, as I said to you on our podcast, I'm, you know, humbled and grateful and, you know, in awe that I, and here I am, you know, 
Blood Origins is speaking to Jack Carr on his freaking podcast. It's crazy. Uh, the honor, honor is all mine. And uh, let's get to field, uh, field together soon. Yes, sir. Awesome. All right. Take care. Just wanted to say a quick thank you to Navy Federal Credit Union for taking such good care of me and my family over the years. I've been a member since 1996. Right there. There's my Navy Federal Credit Union cue card right there. So yeah, been a member for quite some time now. They've done a fantastic job with me and my family. And I know that investing and saving can be stressful and Navy Federal Credit Union takes that stress away. A lot of educational materials and they can help you get on track in 2022 when it comes to saving and investing. So go to navyfederal.org backslash save and invest. Trust me, you won't regret it. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but SIG was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. Now, Simon & Schuster is sending some terminal list books to the Kindness Campaign, which sends gift baskets to veterans uh, dealing with cancer, who've just been diagnosed with service-related uh, cancer. So uh, Go Ruck had uh, had in there. There's a bunch of other things in there uh, along with, with the book. So uh, the Kindness Campaign, very cool. Uh, thank you for, to, uh, to Simon & Schuster for, uh, for doing that. Uh, what else do we have going on here? CombativeEdge.com. Awesome. So they are on the social channels, Combative Edge and uh, CombativeEdge.com. Rob, thank you so much for sending this blade. Look at this thing. This is solid. Look at that thing. I pulled that thing out. That is a solid blade. Awesome. Very cool. Rob, thank you so much for sending this. Sincerely appreciated. You know how I like my blades. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Find out more about Robbie Kroger at bloodorigins.org. Follow him on the social channels from there and be sure and check out their YouTube channel as well. Some great videos on there. Follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, jackcarusa.com for the merch and official jackcar.com is the website. My next novel, In the Blood, is coming on May 17th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, read by Ray Porter. Until the next time, take care, be safe, stay strong, keep fighting. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Exactly, Which box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.